This is Episode 2 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to Episode 2 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. In this episode, we sit down with Sean Kelsey, Associate Professor of Philosophy and the Chair of the Center's Faculty Advisory Committee, to learn a bit about his teaching, the book he's writing on Aristotle's De Anima, and how he sees the Center for Ethics and Culture having a positive impact on students and on the Catholic identity of Notre Dame. Let's head into the Maritime Library for this delightful conversation. I'm here with Sean Kelsey, an Associate Professor of Philosophy and the Chair of the Center for Ethics and Culture's Faculty Advisory Committee. Hi, Sean. Hi, Ken. Sean, tell us a bit about yourself. What do you teach? So I'm in the philosophy department, and so I teach uh, philosophy courses both to undergraduates and to graduate students, and to undergraduates at all levels, both introductory courses and more advanced courses for students who are majoring in philosophy. Uh, I specialize in ancient Greek philosophy, so in those advanced courses, I'm mostly focused on Plato and on Aristotle. I also teach a survey course of on the history of ancient and medieval philosophy, and I teach quite a bit of intro to students, both in small uh, seminars as well as in big lecture courses. How big is one of your big lecture courses? Uh, it's 200 students. Uh, and are you peripatetic when you do so? Yes. I yeah. can't uh, think very well without moving, particularly walking. So sitting here in a chair is really killing It you. puts me at a disadvantage. <laughs> this year, however, you're on leave. What, what are you doing this year? Well, this year I'm on leave. I uh, sabbatical leave, and I uh, won a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, to write a book on Aristotle's Dianima. The Dianima is about uh, life, about uh, what it is that separates living things from non-living things. And Aristotle, uh, in that book, is trying to give an account of what life is that would uh, make intelligible why it is that living things do some of the characteristic things that they do. And in my book, I'm focused in particular on their cognition, uh, both sensory cognition, perception, imagination, memory, and so on, and also uh, what we might call rational cognition, um, the kind of understanding they have of why things are the way they are, the kind of insight they have, uh, they we, we, people, have into the natures of things and to what those things are that makes it uh, intelligible us to us why I given what they are, they should have the qualities and characteristics that they have. And I'm interested in tracing out how Aristotle thinks that his own account of what life is helps make our cognitive life intelligible, and in particular helps make it intelligible how it is that we come to have, uh, both through perception and through reasoning, uh, objective knowledge of the world uh, as it actually is. It's man thinking about himself. As a thinking person. Yeah, in a yeah. way it is. Um, you know, as I kind of see the background that Aristotle is responding to, um, there are 
ways of explaining, you know, why things appear to us the way they do, where we appeal to facts about ourselves, our upbringing, our socioeconomic, political environment, uh, all those kind of contribute to giving us a kind of particular take or slant or perspective on things and things uh, appear to us the way they do because we're looking at them from a particular perspective. And it's not too hard to see how that idea kind of drawn out can lead to uh, a kind of skepticism or relativism uh, about the possibility of human beings uh, or other animals for that matter uh, seeing the world, so to speak, as it is in itself as opposed to uh, through the distorting lens of the particular perspective that they happen to occupy. So one of the things Aristotle wants to do in giving an account of how we attain objective knowledge is to not tumble into that trap. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, he also doesn't want to make it as if uh, we, the the knowing subjects in the world, uh, which we know are, so to speak, um, completely other or alien to one another, Mm -hmm. um, impervious to, not affected by my physiology and my background and culture, because in that way, it's going to start to turn out to seem mysterious that the world should appear to me in any way at all, mm-hmm, let alone mm-hmm. uh, as it is in itself in its own right. So that's kind of the other situation um, that Aristotle wants to avoid. He wants to explain why things uh, appear to us as they are uh, without making it like in principle mysterious uh, how and why they should do so. And his basic idea, as I understand it, uh, which is encapsulated in his claim that what life is is uh, the very form of living things, their very nature or substance or essence, is to say that uh, life is a kind of norm or measure, not just for the living things themselves, in light of which uh, we judge whether they uh, are doing a good bad job, good or bad mm-hmm. job at being what they are, but it's also a norm or measure for the objects that they deal with in living their lives, Uh, predators and prey, obstacles and paths, offspring and mates. And in the cognitive realm, uh, the perceptible qualities of bodies in the world and the natures of the things that are. So Aristotle's idea is to kind of see our own nature as a kind of rule or measure of reality. So that for Aristotle, there's a sense in which actually it's true that man is the measure of all things, Mm -hmm. not just any man and all his idiosyncratic peculiarities. Not individual man. Not yet, not individuals in all their individuality, but Mm -hmm. individuals insofar as uh, they come up to and fulfill the mark that's set by by their own nature as human beings. And the idea of the book is to kind of, of my book, is to read the De Anima as kind of developing an account of life, uh, which is going to have this result. In your introduction, kind of the, which I assume is the thing that you sent to the, uh, to get the grant, right? Yeah, or, well, um, a smaller version in a way. Smaller version. Yes. Show. So there you, you talk about how Aristotle first presents the various answers to these questions of his of his predecessors. Correct. And those kind of set the stage for him to give his own answers. Yes, that's right. They kind of set the 
the problems, which any satisfactory answer is going to have to steer clear of. Sure. And those problems are essentially the two that I mentioned. On the one hand, uh, making it turn out that actually we don't have Kind of skepticism. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's not just human beings, but also animals. And Aristotle just takes it for granted. Uh, animals wouldn't be able to navigate their environments successfully if they couldn't tell offspring from mate, predator sure. from prey, obstacle from path, and so on. They, animals clearly do that. How is it that they do that? So we can't uh, give an account of what life is, which has the consequence that actually they don't do that. And the other obstacle is by uh, to avoid making it like in principle mysterious Mm -hmm. because the knowing subject is just completely other and alien, doesn't interact with, is not uh, shaped and formed by uh, the world that it encounters uh, in perception and in reasoning. These are, of course, philosophical positions that continue to you know, exist in our day too, right? All the way down through uh, history of philosophy. Yeah, they are. And that's part of what I think uh, makes the day anima uh, so interesting. Uh, You know, there has been a lot of, many people are interested in the day anima in particular and in Aristotle in general uh, for what light he might have to shed on current philosophical problems and preoccupations. And in the case of the de anima in particular and what it has to say about cognition, perception, and reasoning, I would say, I don't know, in the last 50 years or so, many scholars have been particularly interested in whether or not the de anima supplies us with the resources to make sense of our cognitive life, the fact that we represent the world as being in certain ways, and also of of consciousness that we're, so to speak, aware of how we represent the world as being, without falling into a kind of dualism, uh, which is associated, for example, with Plato uh, or much later with Descartes. Mm -hmm. And part of uh, the angle that I'm exploring in in the book is that Aristotle's problem is not really how to explain intentionality and consciousness without um, falling into dualism, uh, but rather how to explain objectivity, not how we represent the world at all, whether correctly or incorrectly, nor how is it that we are aware of how it is that we represent it as being, but rather how on earth is it that we represent it as it is, Mm -hmm. that, that we get things right. And so part of the book is to make the case on the basis of the problematic he inherits from his predecessors, that this is the $64,000 question that he's trying to answer. And then the other part of the book is to try to look at how and why it is he thinks he succeeds uh, in answering that question where his predecessors account uh, have failed, either by collapsing into a kind of relativism or by making uh, objectivity uh, in principle an inscrutable mystery. Wow, okay. Well, um, so let's turn to your work with the Center for Ethics and Culture. And by the way, good luck writing. Thank Uh, you very much. Can't can't wait to read and and begin to to grapple with these things myself, right? You know, it will prove a very effective remedy uh, for insomnia. (laughs) (laughs) For those who don't respond to uh, Montavani. I I mean, if I actually (laughs) could open a parenthesis, I mean, I do think that the the problems that I'm dealing with that I think Aristotle is dealing with are – 
the problems we face today, but because the book is, uh, I mean, it's technical in some ways. You know, mm-hmm. it's a it's a book of Aristotle Aristotle scholarship addressed to specialists, and a lot of what it is doing is making the case that this is the problematic that Aristotle is dealing with, and this is how Aristotle thinks he can solve it. And so there's lots of detailed textual work and also lots of um, Aristotelianese Mm -hmm. in terms of which I discuss the problems which I'm finding in Aristotle. I have to set those problems in his own language if we're going to recognize his treating of them. And um, that's an acquired taste. You know. So is there a possibility? I mean, you know, Adler did Aristotle for everybody. Is there a possibility that down the road, once you get this major work done, that you translate this into English for me? It's not impossible. I mean, it's something that I do um, in a way in the classroom. I mean, one sure. of the uh, the De Anima, Aristotle in general, the De Anima in particular, uh, is kind of part of the canon mm-hmm. that an undergraduate philosophy major or, in fact, any undergraduate uh, gets some exposure to. And the great thing about teaching uh, to undergraduates, particularly um, non-majors who are non-specialists, is that they have the fundamental question, um, which is, why should I care? And that's a question which, when you're addressing an audience of specialists, you don't necessarily need to answer because they already care. They're already in. Yeah. And so I find the, the stimulus of trying to uh, answer that question um, to be a real source of creative scholarship because it forces me to think in terms that my students will understand about, so what questions is this text asking? Why are these questions supposed to be important? What answers is it considering? Why do those answers seem plausible? What answers is it accepting? What answers is it discarding and for what reasons? To think about those questions and how to formulate them in terms of that will be intelligible to the non-specialist. That's what happens in the in the space of the classroom. Yeah, and it's for me uh, exciting and stimulating in the extreme. Uh, the bit of writing that now all up. It's different in a live dynamic where you have a living human being on the other side who asks questions, who you can gauge whether they understand. Uh, it's quite different than the space you're in when you're addressing yourself to a professional audience and right. trying to um, make your points clear and support your points and so on according to the stand- standards internal to that specialized sure. discipline. That's quite a different space. So it would be – the translation work would not be trivial, but it is something that um, – I have an interest in a way what I'm doing now is translating from the idiom that I tend to use in the classroom into an idiom that uh, has commonalities and overlap with Aristotle's own technical vocabulary and ways of thinking. Sure. So let's turn to your work with the Center for Ethics and Culture. Yes. Uh, How did you get involved with the center? Well, I think uh, I first got to know the center uh, under the – stewardship of the previous director, David Solomon, who was at the time my colleague in philosophy, now my colleague emeritus. And um, I also came to know uh, Carter through some mutual friends uh, in in the law school. So when Carter took over uh, the directorship of the center, uh, it was very – we were by that time uh, close friends and with many uh, values and so on in common. And so it was very natural uh, for me – 
to be a kind of supporter and friend of, of the center. And when he asked me uh, first to join the advisory board and then to uh, be the chair, uh, you know, I was very pleased and honored to accept. Uh, how does your affiliation with the center affect your work with students? Uh, it keeps me in the know about the Soren Fellows Program, about the annual fall conference, uh, about the Edith Stein Conference, and so on. And occasionally, um, when I'm teaching students, uh, you know, there are a small handful of students who I get to know a little bit better through office hours or chatting after class and so on. I get to know a little bit about uh, where they're coming from and what they're looking for. And, you know, I do meet students who are looking for some kind of um, supplementary programming, whether because they have rather quite technical major in engineering or in business or or even because they're looking for something, um, even if they have a major in the humanities, but oftentimes in majors courses, you're working on particular texts and so on. And the kind of contemporary setting and reflecting on, uh, on big themes that are important to one as a, as a human being and as a Catholic and as an American and so on, um, those are not necessarily the thematic contact content of the courses that you're taking. So when I find students who are looking for that something else, um, I can kind of put them in the way of the center. Oh, you should know uh, about the center. You should know about this conference and so on. There are lots of opportunities available uh, for this programming, but also get to meet like-minded students and like-minded faculty members and, you know, eminent distinguished uh, speakers who come in and so on. So it's in that way that my affiliation, it's not so much what happens directly in the classroom, sure. but rather in a kind of more informal mentoring is too strong a word, but I can kind of match students uh, whose own interests and proclivities uh, would be a good fit with what the center has to offer uh, with the center itself. Helping them find a community too. Yes, right? that's correct. From your perspective as the chair of the faculty advisory committee, what role do you see the uh, the center playing on campus? So, I think I see two roles. One is uh, really just continuous with what I just mentioned, which is to offer a forum outside of the classroom in which students can kind of take a step back and think about big. Questions, questions which are maybe here and there approached from, from within the context of a particular disciplinary perspective, uh, but in a way that's addressed, so to speak, to every man, to the ordinary person on the street, to the person who is going to take up their place uh, in public life, in, in business or in law or in medicine or in science or whatever it might be, but persons who who's standing in the community is such that um, it's desirable for them, and, and frankly, it's desirable for the rest of us, that they're not mere uh, technicians, but they kind of have a broader perspective of who they are and where they've been and where they're going, uh, both in the first person singular and the first person plural. Okay, so one impact uh, on campus and by extension on the broader in the community public sphere. Yeah, is through the center's impact on students. The other thing I think uh, is that I think there's a healthy, substantial strain in Catholicism in the United States and, frankly, in Notre Dame in particular, where Catholics have a kind of inferiority complex about their 
Catholicism, a kind of craving to be accepted as it's a little old fashioned to say now, but like as an American, yeah, or uh, in the university context, uh, as a scholar, as a scientist, or as a historian, or as a philosopher, mm-hmm. and I think this feature of American. Catholicism is also a, a feature of Notre Dame's institutional personality, this kind of almost embarrassment about its Catholicism. And I think that the programming that the center offers and also uh, its new undertakings in terms of research, research and so on is to try to kind of have the impact of kind of clearing the air that being Catholic, uh, it's not a liability, but it's an asset mm-hmm. in intellectual and civic pursuits and to kind of help boost within the university uh, a kind of sense of pride and independence and self-confidence about uh, who we are and what we do. And in American Catholics uh, in general, a kind of, again, a sense of pride and self confidence about who we are and what we do and what we have to contribute to a common undertaking in the service of values which are held in common uh, by Catholics and non-Catholics, by Christians and non-Christians alike, but where our Christianity and our Catholicism uh, offers a unique uh, angle and perspective that can enrich and deepen and actually further these kind of fundamental human values. And so I think that the center's place on campus and by extension in the public sphere more generally, uh, it has the potential to help overcome and turn what is a source of embarrassment and self-loathing into a, a source of energy and pride, not in the sense that we're out to paint everybody in our own image, but in the sense that we are who we are and we're proud of that. And we think we have something to contribute, Mm -hmm. something to contribute to uh, our brothers and sisters in the human family. Thank you very much for your time, Sean. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Professor Sean Kelsey. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. You can subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>